Genesis is not an easy book to read. There's a challenge facing us. Um, It's removed from us historically and culturally. It's about things that took place a long time ago in a very different context to ours. Even the style of writing in Genesis is unusual. Uh, It's not like a modern story, even a short story. Hebrew narrative style is very concise, with little description of unnecessary details, and there are few editorial comments. You're shown things, but explanations are few and far between. Lots of mainly short episodes are gathered together in Genesis. And many of the episodes give the appearance of being self-contained and perhaps disconnected from the other episodes. There's no single human character that holds all of Genesis together. The only character who who does, in a sense, is God. Consequently, uh, Genesis is often viewed as a collection of disjointed episodes. And that's not only true in the academy, but it's also true, I think, in the church. I want to suggest to you this evening that the best reading of Genesis will explain why all the different parts have been included. I made a mistake on the handout at this point, so the grammarians among you will note it very quickly. We should expect no part of Genesis to be superfluous. Uh, Three years ago, my daughter Jane bought a house. And as you do when you uh, sort of begin to settle down, one of the first things you do is take a trip to Ikea. And uh, you end up buying for yourself a piece of flat pack furniture. Uh, In this case, it was a bedroom dressing table. And I thought I had made it as a father when Jane said to me, I don't need your help to put this together. And she set about putting it together, and uh, she had some success. Uh, She managed to put it together, sent me a text, Dad, it's done. I succeeded. I got it all put together. And I thought to myself, One up, Dad, you succeeded at least in one thing in life. Well, uh, two days later, (laughs) the phone went. Uh, Dad, um, it's beginning to sag in the middle. (laughs) Now, IKEA furniture isn't necessarily the greatest furniture in the world, but you don't usually expect it to begin to sag after a couple of days. I said, well... I'll come round and see what's wrong. Uh, I came round, and it didn't take me very long to discover that uh, in the process of putting this uh, piece of furniture together, Jane had succeeded in not using any of these little fittings. (laughs) Uh, Some of you, some of you, uh, those of you who are smiling know what these are and how they work. She said to me, there were all these little things left over at the end. (laughs) But I just threw them in the bin. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, something very important was missing. And it had an impact. Um, Let me change the metaphor a little bit. Um, When you build a jigsaw, if you want to get the full picture you need to include all the pieces. You can't possibly get away with putting half the pieces into the jigsaw and hoping that it works. And I want to challenge you this evening in thinking about Genesis as a book in which all the episodes need to be included if we're to make sense of it. I'm going to try and get this across to you, first of all, by asking the question, what do we see when we stand back 
and look at Genesis as a whole? What do we see when we stand back and look at it as a whole? And then secondly, and here I'm hoping to involve you just a little bit in this uh, talk this evening, um, we're going to look at one or two, three or four of the pieces in detail and see how do they fit in to the overall uh, jigsaw, the picture. Here's a little starter for you. On your handout, I hope everybody's got a copy. On your handout, I want you to just maybe talk to the person beside you and see if you can quickly come up with an answer to this question. What do the following have in common? Adam, Methuselah, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Have a quick chat with your friend, neighbor. Okay, okay. Anyone, anyone want to venture a very quick answer? Who put us all out of our misery? Any, any answers? They are in historical order. Yeah, it's okay, but that's, that's one thing. But what, what links them all together? Sorry, I think. They're, they, they have all got family trees. You're, you're warm, but not quite there on the answer that I'm looking for. But that's a good, good, good go. They are all in the same family tree. They are all related to one another. Uh, they're all in the same family tree. I was expecting somebody to come out and say they've all got, they all have the letter A, but uh, <laughs> David McNeil's not here, is he? Um, and they're all men. They're all men. Okay. Um, um, and God spoke to them all. That's... Well, perhaps true, Albert. We don't know that. We can't say that of Methuselah. We might say it of many of the others, but not perhaps of Methuselah. They all belong to the same family tree, and this is important. Genesis presents us with a family tree that begins with Adam. I hope you can make this out. begins with Adam, and then is traced through Seth the whole way down to Noah, and then from Noah, you follow the same family tree or the same family line. It's not really a tree. It doesn't branch out. It's a, one single person in each generation. You follow that family line the whole way down from Noah down to Terah. And then things become a little bit slower, but Genesis still keeps you on this family line and it becomes slightly more complicated in that you move from Terah to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. And uh, eventually, most of the end of Genesis focuses on Joseph. And we'll come back to this in a few minutes. It's a family tree, a family line that's very important because the author of Genesis is interested in it. There are uh, particular headings used in Genesis, sometimes in the, some translations have that as these are the generations of someone. And uh, th this heading is used to keep bringing you back to this particular family line and to the in an individual within it and then what comes from that particular person. And you have a couple of what are called linear genealogies. Uh, in chapters 5 and 11 that uh, take you over 10 generations to move the story forward. Uh, the important thing is all of these people are connected together. Um, all of the major characters are related and uh, there, are, there are no exceptions to this and they are all male. Uh, but I want to say women are still important in Genesis. And we'll come back to this in perhaps a surprising way towards the end. Um, so hold on to this idea of a family line that uh, is made up of people who are connected to one another. I now want to draw your attention to a number of the pieces 
in the jigsaw, in the big picture. And I'm going to try and help you see that although these pieces look very different in terms of what's within them, they are actually, in a very interesting way, connected together. I'm going to do a little bit of a guide as regards the first one, and then I'm going to hand over to you to do a little bit on the, uh, the ones that remain. The Abraham narrative begins at, in chapter 11, verse 27, and it runs through to chapter 25. And it's all largely about a childless couple who are part of this family line, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And the story is in very large measure about how they um, end up, how they acquire a son. Uh, it's not a straightforward story. You may recall how Sarah gives her Egyptian maidservant Hagar to Abraham to see if she can function as a surrogate mother and provide a child, Ishmael, and he's not meant to be the child of promise. And then later she has Isaac. And it seems whenever Isaac is born to Sarah in her old age that things are coming together. And then there's a twist at the end of the story because God says to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and sacrifice him. And that's something of a shock uh, in the telling of the story. Uh, you'll remember how Abraham takes Isaac to one of the mountains of Moriah and how he is prepared to sacrifice him, but not without perhaps a sense of hope that even if he does so, uh, God will restore Isaac to life again because he, he says to the servants whenever he leaves them to go up the mountain that he and the lad will return. Uh, so Abraham... Although he's being tested by God, he seems to have some trust that God will resolve what appears to be a, an impossible situation. The end of the chapter is something that uh, often gets looked over, but it contains a very important statement, and I want to draw your attention to it. I'm not sure how well it will come up on the screen um, here. Um, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Uh, the... Um, text becomes a little bit tricky at this point because there are two ways of possibly reading the rest of the statement. Um, the reading that I prefer, and that's why the text is slightly modified, your descendant will take possession of the cities of his enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This divine oath is the climax to the Abraham story, the main part of it, and it has a dual focus. It focuses on the idea of Abraham having numerous descendants, and then it focuses on a single descendant. Now, if we jump back in the Abraham narrative to chapter 17, we would see there that God at one stage entered into a covenant with Abraham with the promise that Abraham would become the father of many nations, the father of many nations. And this reference to numerous descendants is picking up on that idea that in some way, Abraham is going to have a connection to the nations, to the peoples of the world. Um, the other thing that comes across here is that the theme of blessing jumps out. Um, through one of Abraham's descendants, the nations will be blessed. And um, th this is going to be a significant theme throughout Genesis uh, in terms of how you should read the text. There are certain themes that keep reappearing in Genesis, and you need to be alert to them in order to see the big picture. Um, descendants is one of them, um, offspring, 
and then also blessing and, and the concept of seed. Um, so, here at the end of the Abraham narrative, you have this idea that Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, that he's going to have many, many descendants, and also this idea that through one of his descendants, um, the nations will be blessed. Now, I want, to, I want you to hold on to that thought for just a few minutes, and I want to move on to what's the second jigsaw piece, and here's where I want you to get involved a little bit. Um, Isaac, Jacob's son, um, eventually marries Rebecca, and they have twin boys. Um, they're not identical twins, they're very different in terms of how they're described. Uh, one is smooth with little hair, the other is hairy. Uh, one is, likes to be at home with his mother, the other likes to be out in the field um, hunting game. Uh, one day, and uh, this is the first episode that we're given regarding the twins, um, one day Esau comes home hungry. Um, the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. There's a, a connection between the name Edom and the color red in Hebrew. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Okay. Now, the question for you to answer again, just have a chat with the person beside you. Um, what does this passage tell us about the attitude of the twins to the divine promises given to Abraham and Isaac? What does it tell us about the attitude of the twins to the divine promises given to Abraham and Isaac? You want to have a, a brief chat about that and see what you can glean from this rather strange episode? Okay, okay. Sorry to be... Uh, Pushing you on this one. Okay, what, what, does it, what does this little story tell us about the attitude of the two brothers to um, uh, the divine promises that have been given? Any, any suggestions? Okay, they, they see it perhaps as something that could be traded. That may be an element of it. Chris, that's an idea. Any other suggestions? Esau, was cavalier. <laughs> Esau is exceptionally cavalier about the benefits. Uh, he, he is the firstborn. Uh, he might have expected to inherit these divine promises. And remember, one of the promises was that all the nations would be blessed through an offspring, a descendant of Abraham. Uh, um, how, does, how much does, what value does Esau put on it? Uh, a bowl of lentil stew. Okay. Um, and as far as Esau concerned, this wasn't a particularly tasteful bowl of lentil stew. But that's all, that's all that he gives to it. Well, uh, partly, Esau 
And the narrator draws attention to it, and that's why the statement by the narrator is exceptionally important at the end. Esau despised his birthright. Jacob, however, who is the younger twin, wants to have this. It's of value to him. And he sees an opportunity now to grasp it. And he's prepared to take advantage of his brother. Imagine, you know, your your brother comes in hungry and and Jacob gets into a discussion about having the birthright. Uh, uh, It's something that's on Jacob's mind. He wants to have it more than anything else. And once you get into the Jacob story, you discover that it's very much a story about someone who sees the value of something but goes about the wrong way in terms of getting it. And Jacob has to go through a life experience that leads to some form of transformation in his life. But he ends up actually being the one who is viewed, who, who receives the inheritance of the birthright. And that's why within the family line in Genesis, uh, the family line moves from Isaac to Jacob and not to Esau. And that's exceptionally important to pick up on. Uh, there's, there's so much more that could be said uh, about the relationship between Jacob and Esau and, and all that goes on in Jacob's life, but uh, pick up on that. One other thing that you will discover, once you move beyond this episode, there's then another episode that has to do with deception because uh, um, Isaac wants to bless Esau. And you'll recall how Rebekah gets involved and they dress Jacob up in goat skin so that he can pretend to be Esau and in order for him to receive the paternal blessing. Um, and so you end up discovering that blessing is linked in with the firstborn. Um, uh, the birthright. Um, and in the, in the Hebrew text, there's a wonderful play on words here because in the Hebrew text, um, Bukharah is the word for birthright and Buracha, and the two words end up using the same consonants, um, is the word for blessing. And the Hebrew text plays on these two words because they're closely connected. The one who has the birthright is going to be the one who brings blessing. Read the rest of the Jacob story and you'll discover that although Jacob goes off empty-handed, fleeing from Esau and goes to live with his uncle Laban, um, he brings blessing to Laban and Laban's household. And eventually, Jacob returns to the promised land a very wealthy person because God has been with him and blessed him. Uh, uh, So these themes of birthright and blessing become very important in the development of the Genesis story. And it's tied in with this idea that is going to be through one of Abraham's descendants that blessing will come to the nations. Let's jump on to another piece of the jigsaw. We're jumping to chapter 48 of Genesis at this point, to almost the end of the book. And it has to do with Joseph. Joseph has two sons. The eldest is Manasseh, and the younger son is Ephraim. And he brings his sons to Jacob in order that Jacob might bless them. And something unusual happens. Joseph, when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. Now, you could actually translate the Hebrew text there slightly differently. It's not a very, uh, that's not a very good translation necessarily of the Hebrew text. And it could simply be that his descendant 
will be the filling of the nations or something like that. It's an unusual expression that's used in the Hebrew text. Jacob blessed them that day and said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Now, a very quick question for you. Um, how does this passage pick up motifs, ideas, found in the earlier passages? Can you see any connections between this passage and the previous passages? Okay, I'm really pushing you on this one. Um, okay, a, a very different kind of incident from the previous passages that we've read in terms of one God speaking and then uh, two brothers having a quarrel. Uh, here's something quite different. Uh, it's a deathbed scene. Um, uh, Jacob is blessing these two boys. Um, how does this tie in? What, what connects this with the previous episodes? Any suggestions? The younger brother becomes more important. Uh, and this has been actually a recurring theme within the book of Genesis because Isaac was younger to Ishmael, Jacob was younger uh, to Esau, and Joseph is actually younger to ten older brothers. And one of the things that uh, you'll discover, or you ought to discover, is that in the Genesis story, Joseph, favored by his father, remember the, the, the coat that he has and the like, Joseph is the one who is treated as having the blessing or the, the birthright is given to Joseph. Um, um, and in turn, the birthright is going to pass from Joseph now to Ephraim, a younger brother. So there's something, in a sense, significant in, in all of this. And note again how the theme of blessing is also here in, in this particular passage. Um, well, I hope you're beginning to tune in to some of the things that uh, are important when it comes to reading through Genesis. Now, one other passage that I want to draw your attention to. Um, Sorry, David, yes. Um, is it unusual for a grandfather to be blessing his grandson rather than uh, Joseph to be passing the birthright on to his um, It is somewhat unusual, within the, and certainly within Genesis this is unusual. Uh, chapters 48 and 49 are actually linked together. Uh, this is where chapter divisions sometimes become a barrier to reading the text. But you discover that what begins in chapter 48 continues on into chapter 49. And in chapter 49, uh, uh, Jacob takes time to bless, and, and I put that in quotation marks because some of his blessings aren't actually blessings, but he, he says something about all of his sons. And uh, so this, is, this sort of precedes what happens with all of the, the, the other, the old, the, the, his actual sons. He does something with his grandsons. And there's a sense in which this 
signals that Joseph and his family are being set apart in a particular way from the other brothers. It signals something to do with the importance of Joseph and Ephraim. And uh, if you read on then in the story, you'll discover that uh, the line or the tribe of Ephraim plays an exceptionally important role moving forward. It's going to be an Ephraimite, Joshua, who leads the Israelites into the promised land. So there's more to the story. I'll come back to this briefly at the end. Now, um, the one passage, the one chapter in Genesis that usually gets left out is the one I want to come to next. Um, I can remember a few years ago having Scripture Union reading notes, and you know the way Scripture Union is very keen to get you reading consecutively through the Bible, and you'll have a section, and it started with Genesis 37. Uh, We read part of the Joseph story there, and then it immediately jumped over chapter 38, and went on to chapter 39. And uh, chapter 38 didn't get a look in. Now, you're all adults, so um, uh, at least I don't feel too embarrassed about bringing you to this particular chapter this evening. Uh, The chapter is this. Um, We're going to pick up on two parts of it, at the beginning and at the end of it, and I'm going to have to jump over the middle part of the story, but um, uh, there's lots that could be said about it. Judah, um, l- let me set the context. Chapter 37 has described how the brothers, particularly under the instigation of Judah, have sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Um, and you're basically to picture Joseph on his way to Egypt. And uh, you'll pick up the Joseph story in chapter 39. But the narrator suddenly takes you off in a different direction. And you get information now about Judah. Um, So that's where we're we're jumping in. Uh, Judah got a wife for heir, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But heir, Judah's firstborn, just in case you missed it, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for her, for your brother. But Onan knew that the child, the offspring, would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Okay. Now, um, reflect on this one for a moment. Um, what jumps out when you begin to read it that should make you think this is going to have some significance in the context of Genesis as a whole? What do you encounter there that gets you thinking about the importance of this? Um, well, you got down to the youngest boy uh, with Shelah. Yes, that's true. Before you get there, I hinted at it. Uh, there is something important in that, but, but I'm, I'm looking for a connection with what we've already touched on. Offspring. Offspring are important, and particularly the issue of firstborn. Okay. Um, in Genesis, we've been tracing a family line, and we've been interested in the firstborn. 
And here all of a sudden the narrator introduces us to another firstborn, Judas firstborn. Uh, But things become complicated because it seems as if there's going to be no offspring, no further generation of offspring for this particular firstborn. This firstborn is going to be left without offspring. And the story is going to go on to tell us of how offspring are actually born to him. Um, you, you may recall the incident, um, and it's, it's one of these stories that in, in a sense gets left out, because Tamar eventually dresses up as a prostitute in, in order that uh, Judah would have a relationship with her and uh, as a consequence of this, she ends up giving birth to twins. Um, uh, Judah discovers that his daughter-in-law, whom he hasn't really cared for, has become pregnant. And he wants to burn her. Uh, that's what he thinks of her. Uh, Judah is not a very nice person. Uh, the consequence of this is, however, that Tamar confronts him, or, or he is confronted by her, not, um, I think not directly, but uh, he, um, he has left his staff with her. Uh, and, and she confronts him that he is the one who is the father of the child or children that she's bearing. And he ends up stating that she is more righteous than I am. There's a, a kind of a Uh, a moment of recognition on the part of Judah that he has not been a particularly righteous person. The story ends in this way. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. More twins. And boys. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. You have to know the firstborn. The midwife is not going to get caught out here. She will have identified the firstborn by using the scarlet thread. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez, which means to break out. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zerah. Very strange birth incident. The issue, the issue, I I can see some of the the ladies wanting to um, discuss and debate the... uh, the the probability of this. I can refer you to a couple of academic articles if you wish. (laughs) Um, There are actually scholars, there are actually some scholars who've argued argued that um, this particular incident, the the hand coming out first, uh, was written by a man who knew nothing about childbirth. (laughs) And and all he knew about was animals being born because the hoofs come out first. uh, But... uh, there's actually some evidence to suggest that you can actually have this kind of incident happening. Unusual, yes. Once again, the principle of primogenitor is reversed. Here you get this idea that the one who appears to be the firstborn is going to be pushed aside or is pushed aside by another. And if you know your Old Testament, if you know the the ongoing story, you will perhaps have picked up that Perez is going to be the individual who will eventually, uh, his family line will be traced in the book of Ruth, and you will move from Perez down to King David. And that becomes very significant. Uh, Perez takes you down to King David. What's the point behind this? Well, Genesis, in telling this story, is interested in tracing a unique family line. And when you get to the children of Jacob, there seem to be two possible, two potential um, 
directions in which this family line may be taken. Uh, It may be traced through Joseph and Ephraim going forward, or potentially it may be traced through Judah and Perez. Um, If you read the rest of the Joseph story, and, and here's a reason why this episode has to be integral to the Joseph story. You encounter Judah later. Uh, Judah was the one who came up with the idea, let's sell Joseph into slavery so we can make a penny out of this, or more than a penny. Uh, we, can, we can get some uh, silver coins out of doing this, some, some, something of value out of selling him. Later in the story, Judah is going to be the brother who offers himself unknowingly to Joseph. Um, He he doesn't know that it's Joseph. He he offers himself in order that Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, will not be kept a slave in Egypt. Judah offers himself in order to become a substitute for Benjamin. And uh, he stands out as someone who has been transformed from the beginning of the story towards the end of the story. Uh, There's something quite remarkable happening there. And you get this sense that his family line may now be significant moving forward. So Genesis ends by looking at these two possible directions in which the family line may go. Now let me summarize something and go back. We've, We've picked up a few of the pieces of the jigsaw. I hope you can see that although they're very different episodes, very strange from one another, they actually are all interconnected because they have an interest in this family line. They have an interest in the firstborn and uh, they have an interest in something to do with blessing. Now, why is the line important? Why focus on this? Well, the story actually begins back in Genesis 3 and it starts with a statement that has to do with the offspring of of Eve overcoming the serpent, this mysterious anti-God creature that appears. Eve's uh, son Abel, who seems to have gained God's favor, is killed by Cain, who fathers a line of offspring that leads to another murderer, to Lamech. Uh, Read Genesis 4. You you follow the line of Cain for a few generations and you discover it's not going to take you anywhere very helpful or hopeful. The narrator then jumps back and tells you that Eve had another son, uh, a replacement for Abel, Seth. And then you follow the line of Seth down to Noah and from Noah you you follow on to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. With Abraham, God establishes a covenant that confirms the importance of this line of offspring. Um, Through this line of offspring will come a future ruler or king through whom the nations will be blessed. And God speaks metaphorically of Abraham being the father of many nations. He's going to be someone who will bring blessing to the nations because he will have an offspring uh, who will do this. Beyond Abraham, um, the line tracing the offspring of Eve moves to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Um, All are younger brothers to whom the birthright of the firstborn is given. And Genesis ends by indicating that this line of offspring will be carried forward by Joseph's son, Ephraim. But the picture's complicated because there is this link to Judah and Perez. Um, Beyond Genesis, the tribes of Judah and Ephraim stand apart from all the other tribes. There's something distinctive about the people who belong to Judah and those who belong to Ephraim. Joshua, an Ephraimite, leads the people into the promised land. But eventually, the Ephraimites become corrupt. And you read about this as you work your way through the book of Judges. 
the line of Ephraim is eventually replaced by the line of Judah in the time of, in the time of Samuel, when David is anointed to become king. And from David, the offspring of Eve is then traced to Jesus Christ. So this line of offspring that begins in Genesis with promises associated that the nations will be blessed through it, it takes you eventually in the Old Testament through to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Um, Think of how Matthew's genealogy right at the beginning begins with Abraham and takes you to to, to David, and then from David it takes you down to Joseph, um, the husband of Mary. So Genesis begins a story that leads to Jesus Christ. Um, all right, get him ahead of himself here. And through him, the nations of the earth are blessed. In a sense, Jesus is the offspring of the woman mentioned in Genesis, uh, the offspring of Eve mentioned in Genesis 3.15. Genesis is a story that um, starts the process, starts to tell the process by which God will restore people to himself and bring the whole creation into a right relationship with him. And as Paul notes in Galatians 3, the good news was first given to Abraham through the divine promises granted to him. That's central to understanding Genesis, this family line. Miss that and you haven't got your Ikea packed together. Something else by way of finishing. Genesis also reveals how God works through flawed, imperfect people transformed by his grace. Um, In Genesis, God works in the most unexpected of ways. An initially heartless Judah masterminds the sale of his younger brother, Joseph. He then washes his hands of his widowed daughter-in-law. Subsequently, he selflessly volunteers to become a slave in Egypt so that Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, may go free. What transforms his life? Here's the surprise. It's the actions of a Canaanite daughter-in-law. Here is a daughter of Eve who disguises herself as a prostitute to raise up offspring through whom God's promise to Eve will be fulfilled and the evil one defeated. It's not what you expect. And you might well say the same in different ways about other characters in Genesis. They're not what you expect, yet God works through them. Centuries later, another daughter of Eve will give birth to a son of David who will save his people from their sin. Jesus is the great reconciler. But even in Genesis, we see examples of reconciliation coming through those who belong to the family line. Jacob is reconciled to Esau. Uh, It's a very interesting passage. You may recall in the Jacob story, uh, when Jacob is leaving the promised land, he has a vision and sees a ladder, a, a, a staircase that reaches up to heaven. When he comes back, he encounters a strange character, uh, encounters God, and this is before he then meets his brother Esau and is reconciled to him. And one of the things, one of the interesting things that happens when he meets with Esau is he offers to give back to Esau um, the Bacarti, 
the, um, my blessing, my gift. There's a sense in which Jacob wants to make amends for how he has treated Esau. Uh, people are transformed in this unique family line. Um, Joseph is reconciled to his brothers. It doesn't happen instantly and Joseph is very loath to just say to his brothers, I'm, I'm Joseph. Don't you recognize me? Uh, he wants to test them to see whether or not they have changed. And you may recall how in the Joseph story, uh, Joseph ends up putting money back into the sacks. And the basic question in Joseph's head is, are they more interested in money or me? They sold me into Egypt for money. Do they want to be reconciled with me for money or because of who I am, their brother? And you'll see that developing in the story if you, if you read it carefully. Uh, reconciliation takes place. And this unique family line is, is, is drawn out. Joseph becomes a source of blessing to the nations when he delivers them from famine. And you see something of what will happen through the future Joseph, through Jesus. Genesis offers you a foretaste of much better things to come. You're on a journey, and the journey, you get an, in, an insight into where the journey is going to take you uh, when you begin to see the significance of this family line. We've only scratched the surface, uh, but I hope this might inspire you to read Genesis in a fresh way, to look at things differently and to see the importance of this unique family line that lies at the heart of the book. I hope that's what will happen. Anyway, let me at least offer you the opportunity perhaps for one or two minutes for questions. I've covered a lot there and I realize I may not have touched on the topic you wanted me to touch on, but uh, anybody want to pick up on anything?